A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The European witch trials were particularly virulent in the southern German states. Beginning with the Trier witch trials in the late 16th century and continuing over a 50-year period, mass trials and executions occurred in the region. At a time when accusations could be made without what we would consider to be proof, when interrogation, lengthy imprisonment and torture were commonly used to elicit confessions, southern Germany was responsible for about 25% of all executions in Europe. One witch accused in southwest Germany was Katharina Kepler, whose arrest, issued in 1615 and enacted in 1620, saw her imprisoned for a 14-month period. During this time, her son, the astronomer Johannes Kepler, acted in her defence. In one of the best surviving and most extensively documented trials of the period, Johannes systematically refuted each allegation against his mother in an attempt to save her from the fate that befell so many. Joining me to discuss this case study that allows us to explore both early science and entrenched witch beliefs is Yulinka Rublak, Professor of Early Modern European History at the University of Cambridge and the author of books that include The Astronomer and the Witch, Johannes Kepler's Fight for His Mother. Professor Rue Black, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've been an enormous fan of your work for a long time, so this is a particular treat for me. I'm so grateful you agreed to come and chat. Before we get into the amazing case that you have looked into, it might be an idea to talk a little bit about context. We've talked about witchcraft on this podcast before, but this is a specific area of the southern German states interests me because here we see, you know, the mass trials and executions of thousands of people. So in terms of setting some sort of sense of context, do you think there's anything specifically about the social and political circumstances of the area that might help us understand why we have this enormity of persecution? Yeah, so absolutely. We really need to understand and recognise that Germany, as it were, has a particular history with the witchcraft persecution. So we now think about 50,000 executions of women, mostly for that crime of fantasy witchcraft. And about half of these were executed within the German. Lands. And of course, the German lands are characterized by lots of different states. And some of these are really very autonomous in terms of the policies they drive. In particular, the areas where you have a bishop who was also the head of the state. 
And of course, this is a time where some people and intellectuals defend that if it is possible that an army of women is instructed by the devil to destroy harvest, destroy the newly built church tower, then it is the duty of politicians, as it were, to act against them. So this is where we get then in those smaller territories, some of them are also larger, like Trier, what we call the snowball pattern of persecutions, where there's the question about essentially who did you go to the Sabbath with, flying to the devil, then those who are named will be rounded up as well. And you can see why it's called the snowball principle, because you very quickly get high numbers. And in those cases, also, we actually get richer, poorer, middling people who are accused, more men being involved. And then you got areas like the one we're talking about today. So that's southwest Germany. It's a large Protestant territory. It's called Württemberg. And what's interesting here is that the Lutheran doctrine, in a way, was that the witches can't do real harm. They've only been tricked into believing they can do any harm. So in principle, you can only prosecute them for believing that the devil exists in that way. But nonetheless, the sense you get is that, of course, everybody, including the pastors, are afraid of witches. So this was a period which absolutely everyone did believe in the power of witches. That's interesting about that legal basis for the witch trials. I mean, obviously, this is an area in which it is possible to interrogate under torture, and that adds to the number of people who end up being executed. Is there anything else we should know about the kind of legal basis for the witch trials in the German states? People are often surprised by this, that we actually do have very full trial documentation. You know, I think a lot of people tend to think that, okay, there's quick torture, there's not much of a procedure, and that's the end of it. But in fact, this is increasingly, of course, taken very seriously. Uh, you know, people are often acutely aware of the fact that you don't have much evidence to go by, and that there is a complication in relation to many of the witnesses' testimony. How old are they? Is it valid what they're saying? Could there be enmity that motivates them? So, you know, this is obviously also an age of state formation. So the courts themselves begin to develop more legal procedure. What we see in the German states is that the universities are consulted increasingly. So the law professors review in Württemberg, for instance, and in other places, every case before it's torture is allowed to happen in these witchcraft cases. So there is more of a framework to all this than what might think at first. Just sort of final point of context, I suppose. In Württemberg, do we see any correlation between accusations of witchcraft and societal hardships, you know, crop failures and harsh storms? Yes, it's a large area. On the one hand, you know, this can be regarded as a fragile economy. Winters can be hard, summers more wet. So this is the period of what's called the Little Ice Age. And yet, you know, there's nothing devastating precisely in this period. And also what impressed me when I looked at all the town records is that, of course, it's also a very robust communal economy. So Everybody in these small towns and villages lives by very clear rules about how resources are to be shared out. So there's a lot of regulation about how many cows, how many pigs you can have, how they're going to be fed. And ultimately, what impresses me so much is that in a situation of relative scarcity, 
this economy was very robust and it was ultimately quite fair. So it encouraged a lot of people owning a little bit. It mandated against wealthy people amassing all the resources and feeding areas, meadows and so on. And it was surprisingly healthy. So the case in particular that we're going to be looking at, this fascinating case of Katerina Kepler, for whom a warrant was issued in 1615 before her ultimate arrest and trial in 1620 and 21, has an extraordinary collection of records that survive that you have studied. And you mentioned earlier how actually there are quite a lot of very good records for witch trials. What can we learn from those around Kepler's case about the way in which trials were conducted? So what we can learn is that first of all, in terms of how this was administered, the state had governors, ducal governors, in many of these smaller towns. And then the ducal governor's job would first be to collect evidence, but then it went up to the court. And there you had highly trained legal professionals who were making up the bureaucracies of these strengthening states. And then, as I say, the next step, if there was going to be torture, they reviewed it. They thought, yes, we really need to deploy torture. It would go to the University of Tübingen. And then there would be a group of six lawyers who took turns in reviewing that evidence and it went back. So as with any legal system, you know, this sounds, again, surprisingly robust, but also, of course, individuals still matter a lot. So in this case, the fact that this ducal governor is quite new in town, has a relationship with the accusing party and wants to build his career through accusations and believes clearly in the devastating power, which is really matters a lot because it's under his governorship that we get several accusations. That's so interesting. So you can have all these checks and balances, you can have a robust judicial system, but ultimately a human subjectivity is so crucial. One of the central characters, as it were, of this story is the astronomer Johannes Kepler. Can you remind people who he was, what he did? And can we talk a bit about what it was to be a scientist in this world that promoted the accusation and punishment of witches? Is there a tension there? So he's in fact often mixed up with Copernicus, but he lives later. So he's born in 1571 and he defends Copernicus's idea of sun-centered universe. And he develops fundamentally the idea that planets move not in circles, but in ellipses. And that is such a breakthrough thinking out of the box achievement because it really presents the ground for Newton's discoveries. And the idea here is that a circle has very regular motion, whereas an ellipse has a dynamic that then is theorized in terms of physical laws. So that's one of his key discoveries. But, you know, he's also a key man of science in the field of optics and many other areas. Now, what's fascinating about Johannes Kepler is that he was clearly a very super gifted, precocious child, born to a mother who came herself from a peasant background, a more wealthy peasant background. But nonetheless, his father was from a wealthy burger background, but turned into a soldier. 
was away most of the time. So essentially, he was mostly brought up by his mother. And whereas she, I'm sure, would have wanted a son who helped her in the fields, he clearly wasn't that child. So we really have these reports from him that from a very young age, what he's interested in is solving riddles in Greek. So he was one of these children who were really attracted to quite niche subjects and the most complicated thinking. He, he also says one of the tragedies in his life is that he always makes jokes that nobody else finds funny or even understands because they're so intricate. So he's that kind of child and he turns into that kind of man. But in terms of the theoretical complexity of his thinking and an unusual mind as well, he's really there in the age of Galileo amongst the best minds in science there that have been. So he would have grown up with Katharina Kepler and two siblings, but they were born much later. One brother that's very close to him is also problematic in another way. He suffers from epilepsy. So first of all, it's him and this epileptic brother growing up together with this mostly single mother. Whenever the father comes back, there's lots of conflicts and then he goes back into war. But he's picked up by a system of scholarships, lives in boarding schools, and that enables him then also a scholarship to study at Tubing University. The plan is first that he will be a pastor. And then, however, he doesn't quite finish his degree. He takes up a position as a teacher and then starts to write. And then, by very good luck, manages to eventually assume the position of the astronomer royal at the court of Rudolf II in Prague. So, of course, he however, felt always extremely vulnerable as a man, not of any independent means, surrounded always by aristocrats. I mean, he didn't even have the money to buy astrological tools. He had to often finance also the money he was printing on. So always very precarious financially. And of course, that meant that you were precarious in terms of your reputation. And if you were doing such breakthrough research on topics that were, of course, contested by the Catholic Church, for instance, by many others about what the universe looked like, then that made you even more vulnerable. So in other words, to conclude there, when he gets a letter from his sister in 1615 saying our mother has been accused of witchcraft, he knows that his whole career is at stake. So if you were known to have been raised by a witch for generations, your honour would be questioned. Nobody would have gone on to read any of what he was writing. And as it happens, that is actually the time when he's finishing his major work, The Harmony of the World. So this is not entirely altruistic. This is not entirely out of filial love, but also in self-defence in many ways, that he goes to defend his mother ultimately. But I want to ask you whether we have a sense in Johannes's mind about the reality of witchcraft or not. You know, many moderns assume an antipathy between science and religion, but do we see their coexistence? So, yes, we do need to always emphasize that everybody believes in witches, but some people do so more fervently than others and invest that idea with much more fear. So what's particularly intriguing to us, of course, endearing about Johannes Kepler's work is that he does not really talk about the devil very much. Whereas, you know, you look at a reformer like Luther, 
Martin Luther. And, you know, he feels himself fighting with that figure of the devil all the time. He's so present for Luther. Whereas for Kepler, interestingly, that is just not the case. He does not think about these evil forces. He reads books by those that do. He reads demonology. And he thinks about demon as a good force also, as someone who can lead you to insight so as a positive figure, but he is not interested in investing with fear or exploring in his imagination that notion of terrorizing, brutal, tempting devil. How then does he set about her defense? So this is the most striking part of this trial. So he is, to my knowledge, the only relative of someone accused of witchcraft who defends that relative in writing. And he is very clever in how he does it. So he insists on a particular legal method by which you can get all the accusation in writing. So he's got all the witnesses' testimonies in front of him. And then he does what he always does when he looks at his fellow scientists or natural philosophers, as they were called at the time, writing. So he was well known. This was actually an age in which they often insulted each other. Kepler did not do this. So what he was well known for was a fact-based approach to critique. And he does exactly the same. So he scrutinizes very carefully every testimony. And then he says, well, this one is not valid because if you count backwards, if he says already 30 years ago, Katerina did this and that, you know, he would have not even have been more than five years old. So this is not valid testimony. He shows up all the inconsistencies and contradictions in much of this testimony. And by that way, he also then starts to say, what's going on here? And that's some of the most radical statements he makes. He says, well, what's going on here is really the persecution of old women who are very vulnerable. And that is what's at stake here. And that was incredibly radical for the time. So we have in his defense, a brilliant piece of scholarship sort of a counterpart to his scientific work in many ways. But I wanted to ask you about Kepler's attitudes to women. It's very interesting that he exposes this as being about the persecution of old women. And yet some of the ways in which he defends his mother tend to the misogynistic, do they not? It really wasn't my interest in the book, The Astronomer and the Witch, to either turn Katerina into a heroine or, I mean, she was a great resistor, but I don't want to turn her into a heroine, nor do I want to turn Kepler into a hero. So what I wanted to show was really about how ideas about women and femininity shaped his thought. And you're absolutely right. There's definitely also misogyny there. And that means that when he talks about his mother so early on, he makes astrological comments on her personality. Very few, but they include the sentence that is often quoted that she was garrulous, that she was making herself vulnerable for the way she was speaking. And that really is a trope that, to my mind, has much more to do with the stereotypes about women at the time than with her personality. So how do I know this? Um, so I wouldn't have written this book just on the basis of the trial records. As you say, however, there are two big boxes. Everything was preserved in the 19th century when archivists looked at it because Johannes Kepler was involved. So it's a treasure trove. But I wrote this book because in addition 
in the town of Leonberg near Stuttgart, where this happened, we have an extraordinary survival also of town court records and many other records. What I did was to say, okay, so if, if Katerina would have behaved in that way, she surely would have been there insulting other women. We would have traces and we just have no trace of that whatsoever. Plenty for other men, in fact, and women. And you looked at these kinds of trials in your work, but not for Katerina. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. I was thinking of Katerina's neighbour and accuser, Ursula, the way in which Johannes responded to her. That also seems to be part of that sense of using stereotypes of women against them, really, in this case, to try and extract his mother from this accusation. Does that seem fair? Yes, that's right. So perhaps we can paint a bit of a picture first of Ursula, who makes the accusation. So the way I see her, she was a glazier's wife, so a craftswoman, and she was chronically ill, I think we would now say. And her way to manage that chronic illness, which of course is, you know, very hard to bear, was through producing amazing amounts of anger and hatred and projecting then onto Katerina that she had poisoned her. In fact, they had once been friends it seems. So there was the typical accusation that Katerina had given her some wine that had made Ursula ill. The pastor, interestingly, seems to be more on the side of Ursula. What's really striking is how she just seems to be yelling down the street in pain and in rage, and it seems to have a real effect on local people. So that is how things unfold, really, by her making that accusation and trying to make that powerful. I, I realise I ought to have asked you already before this point what it is precisely that Katerina is accused of. I mean, what, what are the charges that are laid at her feet? 
So the charges are, first of all, by Ursula Reinbold, that she has given her wine that was poisonous. And then there's later on a girl that she's meant to have harmed. You know, it is very much your low-level communal type of accusation. We also ought to say that not everybody in the community is with Ursula Reinbold in that accusations and with others. So some people are quite careful in calibrating what they say. They say, yes, that seemed a bit odd how she behaved there. But then again, you know, she behaved very normal in other circumstances. But, you know, of course, you have others who start to completely invest this with the typical fantasies related to witchcraft. So who says she walked through doors and walls and <laughs> and violated boundaries and so on and so forth. So you have uh, that body of accusations. So in relation to Ursula Reinbold, and to go back to your earlier question, though, what Johannes Kepler then tries to show is that Ursula herself was of ill repute. He constructs her as a woman who has aborted a pregnancy that never had children. So he tries to build up his mother as a virtuous woman. And of course, as a good mother and Ursula Reinbold as a single. And of course, that meant at the time, I mean, married, but in terms of not a mother in that sense, a failed woman and therefore full of envy against uh, Katerina. And we have this insight into Katerina's work, really, as a herbalist. How does Johannes draw on this in her defence? So I think this is precisely the point where we have to be very careful. As you know, there's a lot of thinking that has built up the sense that these women were all herbalists, which is in a way were persecuted because of that knowledge. Now, I don't agree with that. And I think what the records show is that, of course, in a place like Leonberg, there was no pharmacy. So the next pharmacy, I think I calculated, was about 50 kilometers away. So what does that mean? It means that everybody practiced herbal medicine. It's what you did. And, you know, some prided themselves a bit more of what they'd gathered as knowledge than others. But it was a normal thing for women as well as for men. So Katerina was one of these women, of course, and it's very important to stress that she did not make a living. So she was not a herbalist at all in the sense of making a living out of selling medicines or anything like that. So she had her kind of home remedies. That's really, in my view, what was going on. But what's fascinating is that Kepler in the defense, again, he tries to build her up into then a supremely knowledgeable herbalist who in fact try to use her knowledge more widely for others, for the good of them. And that's so interesting because at the time there was also a duchess in Württemberg who actually had locally built up, after her husband had died, she'd retired in Leonberg and she built up a pharmacy that operated, you know, with a little lab. She had another woman she teamed up with and handed out remedies to many local people. So that had closed down by the time of Katerina, but there was a sense that it's an ennobling pursuit for women who dedicate themselves with more knowledge to recipe collections to gain a real profile. And that, however, again, doesn't quite fit Katerina, actually, because Katerina Kepler was illiterate. She made sure her daughter became literate, and she was obviously amazing in clearly furthering her children's education wherever that was possible. But she herself was illiterate. She could not study recipe collections. Now, 
Despite having Kepler, the astronomer, on her side, Katerina was imprisoned for a long period of time. And I wonder if we can see something unusual, really, in Johannes's support for his mother and whether this changed over the length of her period of imprisonment. I think their relationship really changed in the course of this terrible story of the accusation and the trial. I mean, we said she's accused in 1615 and it takes until 1620 that he can write the defence. It all drags on terribly and weighs on the whole family. And what I'm trying to emphasize in the book is also that this gives us actually an extraordinary glimpse into how a family was affected by such an accusation. It's a terrible burden to bear for not only the children, but also for their partners. So at the beginning, we have to remember, so Johannes Kepler lives at that time in Lindsay, still the royal mathematician or imperial mathematician of the emperor. Katerina, in fact, has traveled to see him in Prague. They have been in contact, but not very regularly because of the distances involved. The trial brings him closer to his mother, and in particular during the final phase when she is imprisoned. Now, what's happened is really something heartbreaking, is that one of her uh, younger sons lives locally. He's called Christoph, and he and his family, he wants to be just a reputable, ordinary craftsman locally. And he and his family just cannot stand the pressure of the trial. And he cracks up and he says to the authorities that he wants his mother to be deported, essentially, to a further away prison, quite a way away, where she'd never been. And so that it would just be out of his life, the idea was. So she's lost the support of their youngest son. She's also lost the support of her daughter in the sense that her husband was a pastor. And again, he cracked up and clearly could no longer cope with providing any support. So in other words, the oldest other Kepler's brother has died. So there's only him left. So what he does is that he packs up in Linz, takes his whole family to somewhere in Germany, then rents a horse and goes all the way to the place where she's in prison now, where he's never been. They don't know anyone. And she's having to endure 14 months of imprisonment on the floor with iron chains, with two guards permanently who clearly thinks that she is a woman of the devil. And she is finding this obviously mentally incredibly trying. And he now has to talk to her. In order to write his defense, he has to understand her world and her relationship with all the people in the testimony, because that will then feed into his assessment of what that relationship was about and whether people were actually delivering their testimony out of ill feeling against Katerina. So he's having to learn a lot about her life. So this is the period when they become much closer again and communicate on a very different level. And then, of course, he has to live with her through the final part of the trial. So as we move into the sort of last phase of the trial, maybe you can just explain to us what happened in that last phase. And then we can talk about how, in the end, whether we see a particular style of scientific defence from Johannes that allows the outcome. 
So I do think that his fact-based analysis of the depositions was crucial and was a science-based approach that was very unusual and is fascinating. And at the same time, what happens then also means that he's not a rational, of course, scientist. We already said at the time, of course, the notion of science doesn't exist. It's natural philosophy. And we have to be, in any case, very, very careful about misconstructing him again as a man of reason. What happens after the trial is very interesting as a psychological reaction. What happens is that he returns to Linz and that he feels guilty despite the fact that he has been the one defending his mother. And what happens then is that he unpacks all the boxes he had left and tries to reestablish his life. But he's still, in a way, we would say he's traumatized because the question that traumatizes him is, why did this happen to us? Why on earth? Why was this accusation levied against my mother? How did this come about? Then something remarkable happens. He unpacks a manuscript that he has written as a student and taken with him to Prague. And that is a really interesting treatise at heart about what the earth would look like if seen from the moon. But it starts with a kind of narrative plot and that is now called the dream. So the whole thing is one of the first works of science fiction. The kind of narrative plotment at the beginning is the story of a son and a mother. And the mother has access to a demon, a good, knowledgeable demon. And it's this demon who grants them the access to that vision of what the earth would look like from the moon. So what Kepler does now in this traumatized state is that he thinks that this idea that this manuscript somehow circulated from Prague got to Württemberg that was taken up by people who then started to say this is autobiographical. This is about Johannes Kepler and his mother. And so his mother is a witch because she's got access to a demon. And what he does is that he prepares this little manuscript for print. And it's the maddest text you will have ever seen. At the time, academics didn't really use footnotes very much in the way we have to do nowadays. But he does that. So after almost every word, there's a little footnote. And then the footnote says, I was thinking about this and that at the time. So to show that it's not autobiographical, I was reading this book. And that's where I got this idea of the demon from. It's very thorough. But he also, in a way, says, do we always know the difference between magic and religion? religion and natural philosophy? Who would say that we know what the hard and fast boundaries are? Where does knowledge come from? So he asks these much bigger questions and then he prepares that treatise for print. That's so interesting because it means that the trial is affecting his work. The questions I've asked you till now have been, you know, how does his scientific work affect the trial? But this is suggesting that the trial itself continues to influence him. I would say so. I always think that it's the last chapter in my book. And I always felt reviewers can often be challenged, but I always feel it's a one chapter people might not always get around to reading. And yet intellectually and emotionally, psychologically, it's the most fascinating one because I feel you have to make up your mind which way you go. So either you believe Kepler in editing this and you think, yes, this is not autobiographical, or you say, well, come on, surely it is. And there was a reason for 
him coming up with this idea. I mean, you know, of course, we don't believe in Katerina being a witch, but there was something that was haunting him about what may have been then a more practice of the occult in her life. So you have to make up your mind. I collected all the evidence I could and therefore I came up with my interpretation. But I think it's really on every reader, her or himself, to think that through. And let us not forget Katerina. So what has happened as a result of Johannes Kepler's defence? Well, this is really giving it away, isn't it? And to a certain extent, part of it we know. So it is that she is actually released. And I talk about the details of what happens in that very dramatic final end of the trial. But she's, of course, terribly weakened. I mean, she's in her 70s. She's extremely weakened by little food, being chained to the floor for so many months, being demoralized. So the bit we actually do not know is exactly what happened after that. So she died after six months. And it's been assumed that she died in the place where her daughter lived. So her daughter had actually moved with her husband, who was this pastor, because they really wanted to get away from Stuttgart to a place where nobody knew the family because they felt so haunted by this accusation. But for some reason, it's been assumed, and I really cannot see any evidence for this, that Johannes Kepler took his mother to the daughter and that she died there. I think this is extremely unlikely. The husband had made it more than clear that he did not want to do anything more with Katerina Kepler. And so I think it might be much more likely that Johannes Kepler took her with him undercover to Linz. And the evidence that would speak in favor of that is that actually for the next six months, he doesn't resume much of his correspondence with colleagues and even with his best friends amongst colleagues anymore. But of course, this is speculation. I suppose if we're thinking about guilt, the fact that Katerina does not live for that long afterwards is going to be what is playing into that. And actually, I'm struck by the fact, I mean, even Johannes himself doesn't live for a very long time after these events, years, but not decades. So there's a feeling that that last nine years of his life, these must have been events that recurred and pressed on him throughout the rest of his work. I think that's right. I mean, of course, it's a terrible time. We're moving into the most difficult years of the Thirty Years' War. He has to move house in order to continue his work. And yet, what's striking again is that he believed so much in the value of what he was doing. And of course, he believed in God. And he marveled forever at the wonder of the world that God had conceived and was playing with. And he was an inspired man. And he was absolutely a man of what we call the new sciences. You know, he was full of excitement about the possibilities of knowledge and endeavor. And something I regret not putting into the book is that there is some kind of reconciliation also for the family that I don't talk about. So we get this from a later exchange of letters. So he actually made sure that his daughter was married to his assistant, and that happened in Strasbourg. And at that point, his brother came, his sister came. So, you know, the whole family, I mean, Johannes Kepler himself was too feeble to travel to the wedding, but the rest of the family actually came together again. And it was a great occasion. So there is that reconciliation for the family that I think we would have found healing as an experience. 
Well, that detail may not be in it, but many others are. And I do recommend everyone listening to pick up a copy of this wonderful book, The Astronomer and the Witch, Johannes Kepler's Fight for His Mother. It's also Yulinka Rublak has been talking to me. Thank you so much for your time. It's been so much fun to think, if that's the right word for talking about a witch trial, to think about this case together. Thank you so much for all these wonderful questions. That was really wonderful to engage with. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. And also to my researcher, Alice Smith, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We are always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at not just Tudors. And please remember to follow Not Just the Tudors wherever you get your podcasts so you get each new episode as soon as it's released. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.